Amen. You may be seated this morning. Uh, we praise God for the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the opportunity to gather and sing about Him. If you have your Bible this morning, let's open it up to Galatians chapter 5. Uh, we are going to finish up uh, the last of our fruit of the Spirit this morning as we look at self-control. Uh, just to give you a little glimpse into what we're going to be doing is next week we're going to have a recap where we're going to take all that we've been talking about together since the first of the year, kind of bringing that together and looking at how is God working in us to shape us, to mold us, to transform us into the image of Jesus as these fruit are being born out inside of each and every one of our lives. Uh, then we're going to get back into the Gospel of Luke together, and so we're excited to get back into that study as we've been just working through the life of Jesus as it's been recorded by uh, Luke, who's helping us to understand that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He's the one that we've been waiting for to come and to uh, restore all that sin has broken, and so we're going to jump back into that together, and we're excited to do so. Uh, let's just go ahead and read here from Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and let's just remind ourselves of all that we've been learning about for the last couple months together. It says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So our prayer has been, as we've looked at each and every one of these qualities, these virtues that, that the Spirit of God produces in our life when we're walking with Him and surrendered to Him, that we're going to see this evidence of the work of God inside of us. Now, as we look at self-control this morning, I don't think there is one of the fruit that is more contrary to what we see in our culture today. I mean, if we were to think about what the mantra, the, 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 the philosophy, the cry of our culture is anything but self-control, but it's about self-indulgence, it's about self-pleasure, it's about feeding your appetite, your desires, and making sure that you get all that you can get while you have this time that you're here on earth. Yet the Bible is compelling us and calling us to think in a completely different and contrary way, and it's begging you and I to operate in what the Bible refers to as self-control. Now just to quickly define self-control, I think it's a pretty simple definition. It's the ability to control oneself, right? It's the ability to say no when I need to say no or to do the things that I need to do. It means to restrain one's passions, one's desires, one's appetites. It means to have a form of self-mastery and is synonymous with self-discipline. And so as we look at this, it's this calling in our life to be able to have control over how we act, how we respond, what we do, what we live for, what we're after. And again, I think all of us would agree that in this culture and world in which we live, the whole idea is anything but self-control. I mean, matter of fact, day in and day out, we're told repeatedly through a variety of different media and messages that life should be about us, us getting what we want, about us making ourselves feel good, about us making ourselves happy. Yet, interestingly enough, no matter how much we try to grab and take hold of, we are looking at a culture of people who have high rates of depression, anxiety, anger, frustration. I mean, we can go down the list and look at all of the negative side effects that we see happening culturally in our lives and come to this reality. No matter how much we try to grab and take hold of, it is incapable of satisfying and fixing what is missing and what is longing inside of our hearts and our lives. 
Now, one of the things I want to be clear about as we talk about self-control this morning is that we're not just talking about uh, having, having self-will or the ability to just you know, embolden and empower ourselves and having strong human willpower. Now, there's something to be said about that, and we're going to look at it as we talk about what self-control is and, and how it manifests itself in our life. But some of us are people of discipline, right? I mean, there are some of us who have trained ourselves and have disciplined ourselves that, you know, we can make ourselves get up early in the morning. We can make ourselves stick to a routine. We can discipline ourselves to make sure we accomplish in the day what we need to accomplish. We can be careful about what we eat. We can make sure that we exercise. And I would say this, that having a level of willpower clearly is good, that self-discipline clearly is important, but that's not just what we're talking about here. Because when we talk about willpower, what we're saying is it's kind of a mind over matter thing that I can make myself not do certain things and act in certain ways. But when we're talking about spirit-empowered self-control, we're talking about now God working in us to even curb our appetites, curb our desires. It's something inward that God is doing that's going to manifest itself outwardly. One of the mistakes that we make too often in church is we preach a gospel of behavior modification. What does that mean? It means basically we say this, here's a list of things you need to do, here's a list of things that you shouldn't do, and good Christian people fulfill this list. The problem is you can learn to not do and to do the things that you should do, but not have a change in your desire and heart, which is why when Jesus spoke and preached from the Sermon on the Mount, He wanted to get down to a deeper issue of just what you do and talk about the heart that desires it. And so, for instance, Jesus says, you, you say that we, you, you've heard the law, we shouldn't commit murder. Many of you would say, see, I fulfilled the law, I haven't killed anyone. But Jesus would say, if you've even hated someone, you're guilty of breaking that law. Jesus said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Yet, I would tell you that even if you lust and desire and long for someone else, you're already guilty of committing adultery inside your heart. And so, what you and I are needing more than just this oomph to be able to to discipline ourselves better, we're needing a supernatural work where God's at work inside of us and He's changing the desires of our heart. He's replacing the old man with the new man. And as such, as we're focusing on self-control, what we're seeing is the old man, even though it might be enticing in some ways and we might desire those things in some ways, God's looking and saying, I have a better way for you to live. I have a better plan and desire for you. And I'm not just wanting you to say no to that thing. I'm wanting you to say yes to me. And I want us to see the example in that, right? There are some things that we're just going to quit because they're hazardous to our health. You know, we're just going to quit doing those things because they can be harmful to relationships. But God's saying, I don't just want you to say no to that thing in the process. I want to so captivate your heart and life that now in the process of you saying no, it's because you found something greater that you want to attach yourself to. And that's me. Now control yourself in that way. So as we talk about self-control, I'm going to talk about it in two ways. What what I call the positive and negative of self-control, all right? And so the negative is what we typically think about, meaning, well, don't do that, right? So there's something inside me that wants to do that. I know that's not good for me. And so therefore, I'm going to say, I'm not going to do that. So let me just show you a moment where there was no self-control in my life this morning. I, starting the beginning of this year, have said to myself, I've got to eat better, all right? And so, so I can discipline myself to exercise, you know, I can make myself do some of those things, but you know what's really hard for me is not feasting. 
because I love to eat. Just admitting to you, like I love flavors, I love different restaurants, I I love different kinds of food, and and, you know, if you were to say to me, like, what is the perfect day of your life, it would probably revolve around restaurants. You're like, it's that simple? It's just that simple, right? I I just love to eat, right? I think I've inherited that, I think it comes by me very naturally. If you knew my dad at all, like, uh, one of the reasons I love to hang out with Tyler is because he reminds me of my dad. They always know a good place to eat. And so, like, I, I trust Tyler so much with my life that whenever we go someplace, I'm like, just tell me where to go. Where are we going to eat, right? He's like, what do you want? Tyler, I trust you inexplicably. You take me. I know it's going to be good. And, and because I just have learned to trust him in that way because, because I love to eat. And so, anyway, I've been doing well for a while. You know, these snow days kind of help a guy fall off the wagon a little bit. Have you noticed that? I mean, like, you can do well for a while, then all of a sudden, for like several days, you're at home, and, and you just start, like, just walking to the pantry, You don't know why, but you're just walking in there and you're grabbing a handful of something and walking out eating it. And so I told myself this last night, like, all right, this week, you're going to get back on the wagon. You're going to do better. And lo and behold, I come to church, and God bless you, whoever did this. Although I should be saying, get thee behind me, Satan. There is an apple fritter on this little magnet thing in a bag on my, my office. And I thought, you know, I really don't need to do that. And next thing you know, not only did I eat like a bite or two bites, I just devoured it. It was just gone. Crumbs and everything. I'm just like licking them off my desk. I mean, uh, there's no trace whatsoever. And then I realized, well, that, that, I know why. Because my week schedule starts on Monday. <laughs> you know, that's why. Like, I kind of operate from Monday to Sunday. And, and so, that, so I, I didn't break any laws. And that's what sin does. It justifies whatever you want. But like, here's the truth. Complete lack of self-control, complete lack of willpower. Everything inside of me said, you said you were going to eat better starting this week. And then lo and behold, the first temptation's there and I failed, which is why every day I remind myself I'm in need of grace and in God's mercy just to help me to overcome. But, but, but we need to learn to understand that there's the negative where we say, all right, self-control is I'm not going to do these things. I know I have an impulse that wants to do this. I know I have a desire, an appetite, a craving, a lust, whatever it might be. And the negative says, I'm not going to do that thing. And that's why we typically think of self-control, right? The ability to say no to things that are like a trap trying to lure us in. But I want us to think of it in terms of the negative and the positive. By which the positive is saying, I'm disciplining my life to put in the things that I need to put in. And so maybe I'm not going to spend as much time on social media as I typically do because it's a, it's a trap that draws me in. And, and with that trap, I find myself wanting to gossip. I find myself wanting to know things about people's lives that I shouldn't know. I find myself angry or frustrated or judgmental or feeling bad about myself because my life doesn't add up to their life. And so I've got to say no to that. And, and, and that's a good thing when you refrain from that. But guess what? You're going to fill that time, that void of your life life with something. So you're not just going to sit there idly doing nothing. And so what are you going to do in the stead? And more times than not, we don't have an idea of what we're going to do, which is why we're so easily sucked right back into it. 
The positive side of self-control says, okay, God, I'm disciplining myself to refuse to act in this way, and now I'm going to replace that time with something else. Meditation on Scripture, thinking on You, reading something that's positive, not allowing myself to be distracted. And all throughout the day, this is the battle of self-control. There's the negative side by refusing. There's the positive side by saying, now what am I going to do in the stead, in, instead of that thing? Now, as we think about that, what we need to look at and see, it's just like this, right? Uh, you're you're going to eat lunch. I would not advise any diet that tells you just to quit eating. Why? It's not self-sustaining, right? It's not going to sustain itself. It's why so many of the diets that we go on tend to cause us problems because you can only go so long without eating, right? And so, so you're going to have to eat lunch. And so you say to yourself, I'm not going to go get this thing that's unhealthy for me. Well, what am I going to do instead of that? I'm going to go and find something that is healthy. And it's the same thing all throughout our life as we're thinking about what self-control looks like. And so one of the things that I want us to see that God is at work in us through the Holy Spirit producing in us this ability to say no. Because let's just be honest, there are some desires of the flesh that we don't possess the ability in our strength to say no to. It's why we fall into that trap all the time, Right? It's why like, no matter where we turn, it's just always there. We've tried a thousand different ways to get around it, to get over it. And so we need supernatural power. And how is that going to come? It's going to come as we're surrendering ourselves to the Lord and saying, listen, God, I'm helpless. I can't do this. If I could do this, you wouldn't have needed to come. And so, so I'm resting in this reality that as I surrender myself to you, that you're going to take control of my heart and life. And that God, not only are you going to help me to say no to these fleshly desires, but God, now in turn, you're going to replace it with spiritual desires where I'm going to hunger for something. God, may it be hungering for you. God, I'm going to desire something. God, may it now be desiring you. God, I'm going to do something today. May it be now me living for you. And so I want to show it to you in a couple of ways how uh, two great men of faith in the Bible would exemplify it for us. And so if you will, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to look at the last few verses of this chapter uh, that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Now, I, I kind of believe that the Apostle Paul is a sports fan on some level. He uses analogies that are very, for most of us, very relevant as he's talking about sporting type things, competing, uh, physical exercise, training. He sees the benefit of this. And so at times he's going to use these analogies to help us understand the faith. And so he is going to pull an analogy uh, from what were called the Isthmian games that happened in Corinth every two years. Now, you and I just got through watching uh, the Olympics, right? Many of us watch the Winter Olympics. It's like the one time every four years that we watch sports that we never knew existed. Like all of a sudden, I find myself intrigued by a guy or guys and girls who can roll this stone and then take brushes and try to like land it in a circle. And so my family and I find ourselves like really intrigued. And I would just have to admit that as my driveway was a little icy, there was a part of me that wanted to go find some bricks or rocks and like, boys, let's go out there and let's see if we can't, can't do this. Uh, because, you know, there's just something about the Olympics that catch our eye that we watch things that we're not normally used to watching. And so we get this, right? People get together, they compete at the highest level for their country to prove who's the best at these selective sports. And so the Apostle Paul knew of the Isthmian Games. They happened every two years in Corinth. And what would happen were they were going to compete for this wreath, this crown, this prize that 
they were going to win if they indeed proved that they were the best. We, we get it. We, we understand it. Now, what's interestingly, uh, interesting about this is Paul is paralleling this with spirituality. And here's what he's saying. You and I know that these athletes don't just show up one day and compete at that level. There's a lot of other things that have gone on. And so if you were to interview anybody that was at the Olympics this last year and say, hey, did you just like happen to show up and, and, and roll this rock and, and slide this rock and do that? They're like, oh no, I, like, I've been practicing for this my entire life. And if you were to say, well, well tell me about what you do, they would have this, this serious schedule, this routine that their life has basically been dedicated to whatever practice that they're doing, whatever they're competing in. Here's why. Because they know if they want to be the best and be able to compete at that level, there's no room for taking a day off. There's no room for no practice. There's no room for no preparation. Why? Because they would show up and be embarrassed. First of all, they would never make it there. But if they just happened to get there, they would realize, I'm going to be embarrassed because I'm not going to be able to compete. So this is what, what Paul is saying. Don't you know that runners in a stadium all race, all run, but only one person receives the prize. So here's his command, his admonishment to us. He's talking spiritually. Run your race in such a way to win the prize. You're competing. You're at it. Now, now he's not saying we're competing with one another, but this is the analogy, right? You're trying to live the best you can. Now, everyone who competes exercises, listen to this, self-control in everything. Not just a few things. Not just disciplining themselves in one area. But I guarantee if you asked any of those athletes outside of the guys, I mean, some of them look like they could have some bellies on them possibly and still compete in, in, in the curling a little bit. But most of them are like, are you serious about your diet? Oh, absolutely. Are you serious about your exercise? Well, of course I am. I mean, are you always constantly perfecting what you do? Well, sure. I mean, I'm never going to take a day off and lose that edge. And so he says this, self-control in everything. Now, here's the important thing for us, right? We don't just get to treat our spiritual life like a buffet where we pick the things that we want to be and do and leave the other things that we don't. We're to be self-controlled in everything. Here's why that's important. Because anything you're not self-controlled in now becomes a liability and it's a harmful thing in your spiritual life. You can't let your guard down. You can't dismiss any area of your life, but your thoughts, your desires, your prayer, prayer your time in the Word, your, your, your moments of rest, all of this has to be brought into a form of submission where the focus is living and following after the Lord. And so he says, they do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Here's what he's saying. They compete at this level just to win a wreath, a prize that's perishable Man, the stakes are a whole lot higher for us. So look at what he says here. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after, to pre after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And so he says, I even, the Apostle Paul, Make sure that I strive to exercise self-control, self-discipline in everything I do. And here, here's what's his concern, and I find this very interesting. That after all that I've done in preaching, proclaiming, telling people about Jesus, I would find that I myself missed it. Now let me tell you what that tells me. 
The Apostle Paul viewed evangelism, obedience, all of these things as imperative to his spiritual journey. But here's one of the things he was pointing out to us. I could do all of this and miss it if I'm not careful. Now, now I think about that, and I think about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, right? He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, do marvelous works, right? So they're saying, have we not strived to do everything that you told us to do? And then Jesus said, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never knew you. So their life was filled with busyness and activities that look Christian, but here was the thing that was missing from their lives. They did not have a relationship with Jesus. They had never surrendered themselves to Him and brought themselves underneath His Lordship. And Jesus said, because of that, all of these things you did mattered not because you missed out on what was important. Knowing me, following me, surrendering yourself truly to me. And Paul says, so how do I know I'm not going to miss out? I discipline myself. I strive. Now, he's not preaching works-based salvation here, right? He's saying, because of all that Jesus has done for me now, I've given myself completely and fully to Him. He has control. He is the Lord. I know so because I've surrendered myself to Him and now strive to discipline myself in everything. So one of the important factors of our spiritual life is self-control, discipline. It's telling us, it's proving to us that we indeed have been captivated and taken hold of by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we move on to Peter, go to 2 Peter chapter 1 with me, and we're going to see Peter talking about something similar. And so again, these are men who have been faithful to the Lord. They preach, they proclaim, and they're telling us the things that are vital and necessity. So Paul says, hey, you know that all of us are in a race, so make sure you run to win, right? Discipline yourselves in everything. Take control of every area of your life by the power of the Spirit, proving that you have trusted and tasted and are following after the Lord. Now, I love this passage in Peter, and i got to be careful that I don't expound upon it so much that we run out of time and miss the point. But, but I love what he says here in verse 3, all right? 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. By His divine power has given us everything required for, the life and God, for life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Man, this is an encouraging verse right here. The divine power of God in heaven has graced you and me, every one of us who are His children, with everything we need to live a life of godliness. And isn't that, isn't that encouraging? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I read the Bible and see what God asks of me, and I think, man, that, that's too hard. Like, I don't know if I can do that. And my life would bear testimony that there are times that I just don't seem to follow through and do the things that God has asked me to do, and I just wonder, man, God, that seems too big. It seems too much. I don't know if I can do that. And he looks and says, by my divine power, I've given you everything you need to live a life of godliness. Now, here's why that's so encouraging to me. When I have a moment of temptation that I feel like I can't get out from underneath, God says, oh, I've given you power to get through that. When God gives me something to do, a task, an assignment, and I think, God, I don't know if I can do that or not. He says, no, I've given you everything you need to live a godly life. Men, when you're striving to lead your families in the Lord, and you're like, I don't even know if I know what that looks like. I wasn't raised that way, and no one's shown me how. And God, I'm just afraid I'm going to make a mess of this. He says, no, I've given you everything you need to live a godly life. 
When a woman sits at home and she looks at the calling that God has placed upon her and it's tough and it's hard and she just wonders if she can make it through because she seems, feels like so many things are stacked against her. And you're like, God, I don't know if I'm capable. God looks and says, by my divine power, I've given you everything you need to live a godly life. Paul would put it this way, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us, right? So if you want to know well, what kind of power are we talking about, We're talking about the kind of power that overcomes sin and death, that brought Jesus back from the dead. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so he goes on to say, by these, verse 4, he has given us very great and precious promises. So I love when the Bible talks about what God gives us. So he's given us power, he's given us these great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Now, here's what we wish would happen, right? We wish that we trust in Jesus, we're born again, and all of a sudden, all the old evil desires just go away. And none of us has a testimony like that. Now, you might be able to point to some desires that God miraculously took from you. You might have a testimony that says, you know what, I was a drunk and a a drug addict, and then God got a hold of my life, and I just walked away from it one day and never had any desire for it again. And for every one of those people, I can point in the direction of people that say, you know what, God came into my life, He saved me, He redeemed me, and every day's a battle because there's still an old desire that wants to creep in. One's not a better Christian than the other. It's just that God's working differently in their lives. And all of us, we would be honest and say, you know what, while God has given me a new nature, a new heart, a new desire, there are moments where this old guy just wants to keep cropping up. And, and I think we would all admit there are moments that we act out, and here's what we say, that's the old guy I used to be. I don't know where that came from. Something you said, something you did, a thought you had, you're like, where did that come from? That's the old guy. There's a temptation there that exists. And so he's telling us here as we look at this passage that, that, that he's given us this new nature, divine nature. So there's this battle going on. But guess what? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, right? And so we have confidence and strength and we're able to, to, to battle in these areas because he's given us these great and precious promises that he who began the good work in us will bring it to completion that I have not left you or abandoned you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. We could just spend days talking about the promises that He has given us. But now He says, because you've been given the power of God, because you have these great promises, because you have this divine nature that exists inside of you, for this very reason, make every effort. Now, now here's one of the, the struggles that we have when we study Scripture. Some places talk about, well, this is what God is doing. This is God's work. And then there's the exact same place that will say, you need to do this. And we scratch our heads, right? We're like, well, which is it? Is it God or is it me that needs to be doing this? And I think if you go down either one of those trails too far, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Here's why. If you make it, well, God, you're just going to do this. And so you sit idly by like a bump on a log waiting for God to do something. He's going to look and say, I'm going to do it, but you're going to have to get up. You're going to have to move. You're going to have to live. You're going to have to exercise, right? And when I say exercise, like you're going to have to do something. You can't just sit idly by and wait for it to happen. We don't see examples of God working that way in the Bible. He works supernaturally in the lives of people, but He's always working in the ebbs and flows of their life as they're actively living and actively seeking and actively doing. But yet, here's the, here's the bad side if you go the other direction. You think life's all about you. 
and how strong you are and how much you can do and how much you can lift and how much you can accomplish. And so that leaves you down two paths that are both deadly. One, if you're honest, you get defeated. Why? Because you just can't do it. You can't do enough. You, you can't live that life on your own. And every honest person just throws their hands up and says, I'm done. I can't do this. Here's what, what the, the, the deceived person does. He actually thinks he can, and so he walks around with his chest out, very prideful and arrogant, thinking that he's something he's not. And we've met that guy too, right? The guy who walks around like he's, he's mastered the spiritual life, thinking he's overcome all of these problems on his own, and God looks and says, oh, oh no, that's not you. All that leads to is pride and hypocrisy and a variety of other things. And so he says now, God's given you these things. It's his power, his promises, his nature. But now you need to do what? Make every effort. So in light of what God's doing, you need to be doing something too. So so Paul says it like this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's very clear. We need to be working out our salvation, right? We need to be doing that. Now he then goes on to say, exact same, same place, for God is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Why does your work matter? Because God's already working. And here's one of the things that you need to remember. If God's not working, your work matters not. But because God is working, what you do now matters. That's how we keep a healthy balance in these things. And so he says this, make every effort to supplement, add to. And so, so we get this picture, right? Some of us take health supplements. You realize that maybe your diet's not giving you enough certain things, or maybe you want to have better, better physical fitness or, or, or advantages, and so you're going to take supplements. You're going to add to. Why? To help you be the best you can be. And so add to supplement to your faith, goodness, goodness with knowledge. And so just think about this path. Now add this, knowledge with, endu- or, excuse me, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance. Now think about this with me, if you will. He's saying, all right, now that you know that God's at work, He's given you the power, He's given you the promises, He's given you His nature, Now you need to be doing something. Seek to add goodness to your life. We've talked about that. Seek to add knowledge. Now, interestingly about this word knowledge, it's not just head knowledge. It's part there. But it's intimate. It's experiential knowledge. Now seek to know. Make every effort to know this Jesus who has saved you, this God who has called you out. Now, as you know him, guess what's going to happen? You're going to add to that this desire to control yourself, not giving in to your old urges or your old way of life. You're going to seek to live a life that's pleasing to him. And as you do so, you're going to learn to persevere, to endure, to continue on, to be steadfast in this life that God has called you to. Here's what I'm trying to get at for us. Self-control is something that God provides. Self-control is also something that we have to do. Which one? Both. But the only way that your self-control is ultimately going to lead to the results that you want spiritually is when you rely on God and trust that He's at work in you, not just some emphatic type of willpower that you're trying to muster up on your own. Now, as we think about this, I want us to think about several things that I think is what will help us with understanding how self-control needs to manifest itself in our life. And so, so I would encourage you to write these down just to think on if you have a pen and paper with you, all right? Spiritual growth doesn't lead to license, but instead leads to mastery. Now, let me tell you what I mean. 
Sometimes because we read the Bible through this lens of us being freed, which the Bible makes very clear, whom the Son is set free is free indeed, right? We sing about that. Galatians tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But we misinterpret that freedom to now say, I am free to live and do however I want because the grace of God has saved me. The price and the penalty of my sin has been dealt with. I know that I have a home that awaits for me in heaven. And as such, I am now free to live however I choose or however I want because it's all been taken care of. Let me tell you that that is not a biblical interpretation or understanding of what Christian freedom is. Christian freedom is about releasing yourself from the prison of death, but attaching yourself now to the yoke of the Savior, as we looked at last week, who's meek and lowly in heart, where you can find rest for your soul. But think about that picture, that yoke, right, where he's, he's taking control now of your life. And so, The Christian life, spiritual growth, is not about trying to find a thousand ways that I can live however I want. Instead, it's about learning how to master my life through the power of the Holy Spirit and to live my life in the lane that God desires for me. So let me tell you the questions that we ask, or the question that we ask that is a terrible question. And here it is. Can I do that? Right? So, so we're trying to figure out how to live, and we're trying to figure out what, what, what the Christian life looks like. And so this is the question that we ask over and over again. Can I do this? And so, for instance, one of the questions I get asked all the time is, if I'm a Christian, can I get a tattoo? Can I drink alcohol? Can I go here? Can I go there? And what you're basically saying is, can you give me a biblical reference that says, thou shalt not? Thou shalt not get a tattoo. It's not there. Somebody says, oh wait, but, but go back to the law, and the law says that you shouldn't mark yourself. And first of all, I would tell you that I don't think it's talking about the type of tattoos that we're talking about today. I think it was talking about pagan markings that they would put on their body. And the other thing that I would warn you is that if you're going to use that passage, you need to read the whole chapter because there's a lot of things in there that it's going to prohibit you to do from doing that you don't have issues with doing otherwise, all right? So just be very careful about how you quote those passages. Be very careful about how you use those, lest they turn on you, okay? Can I? Terrible question. Here's a better question. Should I? Does it honor the Lord or not? Now, I'm not going to sit here and and diagram every one of your tattoos and tell you why they're pleasing to the Lord or not pleasing or this or that. I'm not going to try to justify your motives or your reasoning behind it whatsoever. What I'm going to tell you, though, is that's a terrible question, can I? Here's, Here's another terrible question. I get this all the time, right? Can I drink alcohol? And what you're asking me is, is there a place in the Bible that says, thou shalt not drink alcohol? To which I would say, well, no, there's not. Now, right now, some of you have these passages that you've gone to, and I would say there's strong warning in the Bible about the danger of it, what it can cause, what it can do. And so I think any Christian who reads those verses should stop and say, wait a minute, I need to think about this, lest I find myself falling into something that I, that I should or should not do, or how that can be dangerous to me, how it can be damaging to me. But that's not the question, can I? The question is, should I? Does this honor the Lord or not? 
And so sometimes we have this idea where we want to use this Christian freedom that we have to excuse away any sinful practice that we want to do. And I'm not saying those other two are necessarily sinful. What I'm just saying is these are the questions that come up and you're basically wanting the Bible to say yes or no in just this simple check off the box. And I would tell you it's just not that easy. And I would tell you, you need to think about where you live and where you surround yourself about because again, the whole idea of spiritual growth isn't about how much can I get away with. It's about bringing myself under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and it's about subjecting myself to self-mastery, discipline, where I'm saying yes to things that I should say yes to and no to things I shouldn't, not because I can or can't, because whether they honor the Lord and they're pleasing to Him or not. And think about that, right? Think about what's my motive, what's my heart, what's my reasoning, but quit using Christian liberty as the license to live however you want to live and excuse away any behavior that you've developed over the past. Now, here's where I know that comes from, right? Because I grew up here. And when I say here, I, don't, I mean in this, this mantra of, uh, of legalism in church, and this idea that there was just this list of do's and don'ts, and if you didn't do this and you did do this, you were considered a good Christian person. No one ever asked you if you loved the Lord or not or surrendered to Him. It wasn't about that. Do you drink? No. Do you smoke? No. Do you listen to rock and roll music? Uh... Does Striper count? You know, I remember the first time I brought home a Christian rap album, and there, there was such thing. How good it was, I don't know, but, but when you're a church kid, like, that's what you got, right? That was like the way that you kind of like bridged the gap. And my dear sweet mom, who's here, I think, yeah, she's right back there, came downstairs. I was listening to their name was PID, stood for Preachers in Disguise, because that's the way we hit it. And my mom's like, that's not Christian. And I'm like, yeah, that's Christian. She's like, nothing can sound like that and be Christian. Right? It was, it's just the time that we grew up in. And so, like, there was these rules, and, and the questions were always like, did you do this or did you not do that? And that's how you affirmed whether you were a good Christian or not. But you know what was never on there, on that list? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you seek to please Him and live for Him? Do you desire Him every day? That's not what it was. And let me tell you what that produces in church, right? A lot of people who think they're good and a lot of people who learn to mask and hide. On the church trip, I'll listen to Petra. On when I get home, I'm listening to Baby Got Back, right? I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just sinful and wrong and, and we shouldn't have, but we did. And so nonetheless, that's what it kind of created in us. And so now all of a sudden, here's what you found. There's freedom. There's freedom. There, there's grace that abounds. And so we, we, and there's been a resurgence of that. Praise God. But guess what that creates when you let, let that, that animal loose? He runs and he runs and he runs and he wants to justify anything and everything that he does. And he never stops to ask this question, not can I, but should I? And what self-control and self-discipline is doing is we're learning to ask this question, God, what is pleasing to you in this situation? By grace, I'm free to eat the 20-count chicken nugget. But maybe today I just need the 10 with a large fry. <laughs> right? I mean, 
It's, it's asking those type of thoughts and those questions. So, so spiritual growth doesn't lead to license, but it leads to self-mastery. What's interesting is at the end of that passage of 1 Corinthians 9, where we looked and we're talking about Paul says, I've disciplined myself, controlled myself. Earlier in that, here's what he says. You know what? As an apostle, as a servant of the Lord Jesus, I'm free to take money from you. But he never did from the church in Corinth. You want to know why? Because that, that group of people were fickle and difficult, and he said, you know what, I don't want you to ever think that I'm doing this for money. So I'm free to take it, but I'm not going to for your sake. Earlier in that passage, he's talking about this meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and basically some of them were having issue, it was causing others to stumble. It's a very simple thing that there was meat that the pagans would bring to, their, to worship their idols, and they would take it, cut it up, they would resell it, you could get it a little bit cheaper. And so there was this question like, should we eat that or should we not eat that? And it was this, this dilemma that they were coming up with. And Paul says, you know what, to me all things are permissible, doesn't mean they're beneficial. And so he kind of appealed back to their Christian conscience, like, like if you eat that, but it causes someone else to struggle, now you got a problem. But if your conscience is clear and clean, and it's not going to cause others to stumble, I'm not going to give you a yes or no, I know that's what you want, but it's just not that simple, but you need to ask yourself, why? Is it worthy of the gospel? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Is it going to cause more harm than good? So these are questions that we need to learn to ask about how we live. And and, and I would just say this applies to where you go. You might say, well, I can go there and not sin. Maybe, maybe not. But but is that what the Lord would ask you to do, right? I can act this way and and listen to these type of things and be okay with it. Yeah, but, but do you really know the big outcome? And is it pleasing to the Lord to bring that into your life? Here's another thing, that little things from spending to speech reveal our level of self-control. So sometimes we want to look at like these big things, right? And I would tell you, quit looking at big things, start looking at little things. Your life is not made up of a bunch of big things. It's not made up of a bunch of big decisions. I find it funny. We're always asking God, like, what's your plan for my life? What's your will for my life? You're like, God, tell me the big things that I need to know. And God says, hey, why don't you not worry about the big things and just worry about the little things? You want to know why? Because for every big decision you're going to make, you're going to make 10,000 little ones. Think back at your life, really, and think about how many big decisions you've made. And I would tell you this they pale in comparison to the number of little decisions that you make. So quit looking at just these big areas of of whether I'm self-controlled in this or not and start looking at the thousand little areas of your life that are going to tell you. So, So here's what I mean when I say about spending. You might say your spending is under control because you don't buy a lot, but the reality is you're just cheap. Right? You're like, oh, I'm self-controlled in my finances. No, you're not. You're a tightwad. Nobody likes you because you're greedy and you're not giving and all you care about yourself, which is why you hoard it all for the rainy day, but, but you've said, I'm a, I've got under control. No, you don't. Here, here's another way to evaluate your spending. Not as do I spend, period, but where do I give? Right? Positive and Negative. I don't do it, period. Yeah, that's a problem. You don't ever give to anybody, to anything, anytime. Not because you have self-control, because you are cheap. So shame on you, tightwads. And then those of you who get 40 Amazon packages a day, we'll cover you next week, so you might not want to be here. 
to how you speak, right? James says, James chapter 3, he warns us that no man can tame the tongue, right? He tells us that our, our tongue is telling us what's bubbling up from the inside. Now, when he says no man can tame the tongue, he's not saying you can't control it. What does taming something mean? Taming means you can let it loose and never worry about it again. Well, you can't do that with your tongue, but you know what you can do? You can control it. So, so positive and negative, right? Negative, do you refrain from saying hurtful things? Do you refrain from saying things that would tear people down and harm them and hurt them and lie and all these other things we know that our, our tongue can do? But here's the positive side. Do you have control over in a way to speak life to people? Because maybe you've learned just to shut up. Like you used to just tell people everything you thought all the time and you learned that you had no friends. And so finally you're like, all right, if I, if I want to have people to go out and eat with, I've got to just shut up sometimes. And it doesn't mean you're not sitting there wanting to say it. You're sitting there just like itching, wanting to say it. And, and here's the other thing that never happens. You never have disciplined yourself to say anything good. And some of you right now say, I don't want to lie. And you're like, that's the problem. Your heart's so corrupt, right? You can't even muster up something good to say to someone. And so, so discipline your, your tongue, your mouth, saying not just, not just controlling it, not to say hurtful things, but also, am I breathing life? You know, the Bible says this in Proverbs, the power of life and death are in the tongue. Wow, right? You can kill people with it, you can also give life to people with it. And we could just go down the list of a thousand things that you're going to do every day that are going to tell you, really, what kind of self-control you have. Just because you can doesn't mean you need to run off every chance you get on go on trips. Just because you can doesn't mean you need to buy a thousand things every day. Just because you can doesn't mean you need to be doing this or going here. It means stopping and looking at your life through the spiritual lens of Christ having control over it and saying, how should I live Christ because I want to bring my life into your control? Here's the final thing. Living with self-control will make you look different in the world. Now, I'll tell you why. Because nine out of ten people, and that's not real statistics, it's just based upon what I see and what I know, Think little of self-control, but continually think about self-indulgence. Right? Think about these influencers that we see on social media, which I can't even believe is a job, but nonetheless it is. <laughs> How much of what they tell you is about control, living your life with purpose, with meaning, or how much of it's about living the, your best life now, taking hold of everything that you can get as quick as you can get it, having as much fun as you can have. Now, here's what I want you to understand. There is a lot of latitude. There is a lot of joy. There is a lot of happiness. There's a lot of pleasure to be found in the Christian life. So I don't want us to make it sound like Christian life is about a bunch of monks who sit around doing nothing under the guise of Christianity. There's a lot of freedom, a lot of joy, lot of happiness to be found. Matter of fact, I would tell you that from what the Bible says, that when you take hold of the Christian life, at your right hand are treasures, pleasures forevermore. So I'm not out here to make it sound like the Christian life is just a life of no fun, no vacation, no, no freedom, none of that stuff. What I'm telling you is, though, that if we're going to be people of self-control, the way the Bible depicts it, 
We've got to learn to quit just acting on impulse and act under the leadership, the guidance of the Holy Spirit in a way that would seek to be pleasing and honoring to the Lord. I want you to bow your heads with me for a moment. If you want to know what self-control looks like, look at the life of Jesus. Who in revile did not revile in return. Who in harm did not retaliate. Who in lied about didn't seek to destroy. Who also gave generously and loved, controlled his thoughts. He was tempted, the Bible says, right? In every way that we were, yet without sin. And so he had control in moments of temptation to say, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to do. In church, here's what I want you to understand. That one, for the joy of the Lord, we need to have self-control. For the sake of the gospel, we need to have self-control. To be true witnesses that look different in the world... We need to exercise forms of self-control. And right now, here's what I know about every one of us. There's at least one spot, if not many, that we could say, you know what, I lack self-control in that area. Positive or negative. And here's my hope that as we sing this song, I surrender all together. That we would truly mean those words. Jesus, my life, my desires, my will, all of it is yours. And so during this time of response, the altar is going to be open for you to come and pray. There's going to be people up here that will be happy to pray with you. And don't you be afraid to share your struggles because they're going to listen. They're going to keep it confidential and they're going to pray with you. There's people at the back who would love just to sit down and talk with you because here's what I know. Some things that are going on in our life need to be more than a 10-second conversation with people singing around us and distractions. We need to sit down and have real conversations with people because here's the truth. Your faith is that important. We don't want it to be just something that you do in 10 seconds. We want it to be something that you understand and know that you're doing. So they're available to you. But where's God at work? What's He leading you in? Father, have your way in us today. Create self-control in us that we might look like Jesus. Father, we know that if we have self-control, we're becoming like Jesus. Father, thank you for your spirit that empowers us. Thank you for the promises that you've given us, the divine nature, so we know that it's possible. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with us as we have our time of response?